Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen, a college student and the co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization. My guest today is Christian Brousset, Associate Professor of Law at Notre Dame Law School. We will discuss his paper, Why Didn't the Common Law Follow the Flag?, forthcoming in the Virginia Law Review. I believe it's published now. It is, uh, yes. Welcome, Professor Brousset. Thank you for having me. So let's go over why did you write this article and what's the main crux of your argument? Uh, so I came to this project at first through an accident in the archives. I, I happened to come across a letter from a British official in colonial India back to his sister in England. And this British official was describing uh, superintending a trial by ordeal. So in other words, uh, a witness would grasp a piece of hot iron uh, and, and you know, the witness's veracity would be determined depending on how the, the wound from that burn healed. And it was clear to me that the British official thought this was a terrible way to determine the truth of a witness's statement, but also that the official thought that it was really important that this ordeal go forward properly and that British soldiers not only tolerate it, but actively make sure that it went well. And so that created a puzzle for me. So why would this official, you know, why would Britain actively support this legal institution that it thought was, was, you know, defective at best. And that got me in thinking more broadly about why did Britain get into this, into a habit more generally of maintaining the legal systems of the peoples that it conquered. And so that's what set me on this path. Uh, so the article considers a puzzle about how different legal systems came to be distributed around the world. So most of the world's legal systems were inherited from or imposed by empires. Now, in some of those colonies, uh, the law looked a lot like the colonizers. So if you think about the 13 original colonies that made up the United States, you know, those colonies basically adopted the common law or a version of the common law from England. But in other places, like British India, the colonial state administered multiple kinds of law. Uh, which is a situation often described as legal pluralism. Now, the usual story is that this variation was inevitable, that whenever Europeans came and settled in large numbers, they brought their own laws with them, and otherwise they left pre-existing laws more or less in place. And that's an intuitive story, and it's also a useful one because it's allowed scholars to treat the colonial world as a natural experiment. If it's true that empires didn't have any particular agenda when they imposed different laws in different places, then they effectively set up a blind trial about the economic impact of different kinds of law. My article challenges that conventional story by offering a new account of how and why the British Empire selectively transplanted English law to the colonies it acquired during the 18th century. And it focuses especially on the colonies acquired during or just after the Seven Years' War which confusingly went from, for more than seven years, went from 1754 to 1763. As a result of that war, Britain acquired uh, Florida from Spain, it got several colonies from France, Senegal, uh, four islands in the West Indies, and Quebec, which actually was much larger, larger than the modern Canadian province. And the East India Company around the same time acquired defective, uh, effective control of Bengal. In most of these colonies, Britain introduced English law. But in Quebec and Bengal, it adopted a slightly different policy. Quebec uh, received English criminal law, 
but civil law continued to be governed by French civil law. And in Bengal, the East India Company administered a mix of Islamic and Hindu and English law, depending on the status of the parties and the kind of disputed issue. My argument is that Britain deliberately manipulated colonial laws to shape colonial development. Policymakers believed that transplanting English law to a colony would tend to produce an anglicized political culture and a commercial economy. Legal pluralism, in contrast, would tend to lead to extractive economies that kept local subjects politically disadvantaged. So by controlling how much English law each colony received, British officials thought they could guide its economic, political, and cultural trajectory. So in other words, the extent to which each colony received English law depended on a political decision about what kind of colony policymakers wanted to create. So can you expand a little bit on what legal pluralism and the transplantation of the English common law particularly looked like and uh, why colonial officials in each uh, area might have chosen that particular approach? Sure. So, so legal pluralism is a term that scholars have used in a, in a large number of ways. Again, I use it to mean, in sort of one of its older meanings, which is the state administering multiple kinds of law, often different laws for different groups. Uh, there are other meanings of the term that apply to more fluid situations. So people have talked about legal pluralism when, for example, uh, you know, say merchants have their own way of settling disputes without the state. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the state imposing different legal categories. Uh, in terms of what that looks like on the ground, uh, so it, it looks like different things in different places. So in Quebec, for example, uh, it means that everyone in Quebec is under the same set of laws, no matter whether they're francophone or anglophone. But for criminal matters, as I said, they're under English law. For civil matters like contract disputes or property, uh, they'd be under uh, a system derived from French law. In Bengal, it works a little bit differently. Uh, they're uh, it really is a matter of, of different laws for, for, for different populations. So, so depending on whether or not the, the colonial state identif- identified someone as Hindu or Muslim, for example, that would determine the kinds of laws that they're under. Um, for talking about what transplanting English law looks like, uh, first of all, I, I want to be clear, the article doesn't actually claim that it would always have worked for Britain to impose English law in every place. Uh, I think there's actually good reason to think that they, they could have been much more aggressive about introducing English law and that that would have, that the transplant would have taken. Um, but my, my focus here is on the intentions of policymakers, not on what the outcome would have been. That said, it might be helpful to, to give one example of when Britain did transplant English law uh, to a colony with a, with a significant non-English population to see what that looks like. So one example would be the Netherlands, would be um, New York. So in 1664, Uh, England set out to conquer the Dutch colony of New Netherland uh, and turned it into the English colony of New York. And uh, the invasion fleet that that England sent over actually had several lawyers on it uh, because the plan from the beginning was to try to replace Dutch law with English law. Now, the the transition wasn't instantaneous. Uh, There was some local resistance. Uh, The English state was not all powerful, especially in the 17th century. Uh, But certainly by the end of that century, uh, officials were well on their way to replacing and uprooting the Dutch legal system with a common law legal system. And so today, you know, certainly it was true by the by the 18th century that it was possible for 
uh, for lawyers trained in other colonies or in England to practice in New York because New York basically had an English legal system. Uh, and that was true. That was essentially English policy up through the 1760s. Uh, so for about, you know, for about a century, there was a pretty uh, clear policy of trying to introduce English law wherever the British Empire could. Can you talk a little bit about what the perceptions of legal uniformity and or conformity looked like within England, the particular attitudes that policymakers and people had towards uh, unifying a English common law system? So that's a really important uh, thing to keep in the background, is that English law was never truly uniform, even within England itself. Uh, so first of all, there were there were multiple different kinds of jurisdictions. The most famous division was between the law courts and equity. Uh, so so different kinds of cases and different kinds of remedies were available uh, in different in different tribunals. Even within the common law courts, uh, there were divisions between, for example, King's Bench and Exchequer and, and Common Pleas. Uh, and sometimes those courts actually developed. Uh, differing or, or competing legal rules on a particular case, although that by the 18th century, that was beginning to be addressed. And so, and there were also local customs within England. And so inheritance practices could differ. So there was the famous example of, of gavel kind in Kent, uh, which was sort of uh, offered a different series of, of, of default uh, inheritance rules uh, from the ordinary common law rule of primogeniture. Um, so there was certainly was, was diversity of custom. And this actually mattered quite a bit for when policymakers thought about transplanting English law, one of the things that made it plausible to say that the same common law system might apply in really different places was that the common law itself uh, had a long history of incorporating and accommodating variation. Um, so uh, one example of that, Mary Sarah Builder has a book on, on the transatlantic constitution, which looks at uh, how the Privy Council mediated these differences. On one hand, the Privy Council expected that colonial laws uh, would differ from laws in London, that the local circumstances would demand some kind of variation. On the other hand, uh, the Privy Council also assumed that colonial laws couldn't be what they said, uh, what they called repugnant to the laws of England. And so there was a sense, this constant sense of, of, of tension that on one hand, there was going to be local variation. On the other hand, this was all part somehow of the same system of English law. So can you talk about what the particular purpose of legal policy in the colonial regime was? Why would policymakers advance pluralism versus uh, the transplantation of the English common law? Sure. So legal pluralism uh, was seen to do three things at the time. Uh, so the first is that it was, it was seen to make colonists easier to control by dividing them from each other. So if you had different legal regimes, that would discourage a shared sense of political identity. Uh, so in Quebec, that meant cutting off Canadians from the rest of North America. In Bengal, it meant dividing Muslims and Hindus from each other and both groups from Europeans. Uh, now, dividing rules a pretty common imperial strategy. Uh, but in the 18th century British Empire, it had a particular economic twist. And the, the theory was that withholding English law in whole or in part would discourage the immigration and investment th uh, that colonies needed to develop advanced commercial economies. And the theory was that British settlers and merchants uh, wouldn't want to immigrate to or invest in jurisdictions that lacked English law. Uh, 
whether those outcomes were desirable was really a political question. Uh, in the article, I, I divide British politics sort of along into a two-party system, uh, into Whigs and Tories. That's a gross oversimplification, but I think on this particular issue, it actually is a pretty good summary of how the issue divided. Tories were really concerned about maintaining order in the colonies. Uh, sort of in the wake of the Seven Years' War, Britain was, in some respects, the preeminent empire in the world, but Tories really worried that the war had overtaxed it financially. And they also worried that if, that if colonies uh, became too rich and too economically independent, they would cease to be uh, controllable by Britain. And you know, so this, is, uh, this is obviously in the decade before the American Revolution, and Tories were sort of you know, trying to forecast what the colonial system would look like, and they, and they saw the possibility of revolution on the horizon. And so for Tories, uh, their first concern was, would our legal policy make these colonies more or less amenable to, to imperial control? Uh, for Bengal and Quebec, for different reasons, they thought that it was really important to withhold English law. In Quebec, the concern was that because it was adjacent to the rest of, of British North America, if it also became a common law colony, then you'd have this sort of free movement of people and, and capital throughout North America. It would, it would increase the independence of North American colonies. Uh, it would be too hard to control a, a fully united North America. So by, by sort of siphoning off uh, Quebec and keeping it separate, uh, they could deploy a strategy of divide and conquer. Uh, in Bengal, it was there was a little bit less, there was some concern about rebellion. Certainly there was a, you know, there were tens of millions of, of Bengalis and, and only really hundreds of, of East India Company employees. And so it was very important there also to try to, to prevent the, the local population from uniting against British rule. Uh, there was also a sense that uh, despite a climate that was often seen as unfavorable to British settlers, there actually were quite a few people in England and in Britain generally who, who talked about trying to move to Bengal and turn it into a settler colony. And the East Indian Company was was very eager to stop that from happening. They wanted to make it more of an extractive place where they were going to sort of withdraw resources from the local population, and they did not want it to turn into a place like, say, Virginia. Uh, the situation was a bit different in the colonies where Britain did introduce English law. So, for example, uh, in, in Senegambia or Senegal, uh, where English law was introduced, there was also a, a, a climate there that many people thought was unfavorable to British settlement. But despite that, uh, the early governors of Senegambia and uh, British officials thought that there was actually a possibility for creating a, a different sort of a plantation style colony there uh, that would incorporate uh, both black and white inhabitants. Uh, and it was seen as actually important to attract a, a fairly you know, sizable number of, of British settlers, um, in part for geopolitical reasons. That was also true in the former French West Indies. Um, because those islands were seen as vulnerable to attack from France and Spain, and also uh, vulnerable to, to revolt by the enslaved populations, it was seen as important to introduce English law as a way of, of boosting the Anglophone population uh, for sort of security reasons. Uh, and those colonies at the same time were seen as less likely to revolt, you know, precisely because they were so vulnerable both to internal and external attack. Uh, British officials assumed that uh, they would be less likely to join with the rest of North America in rebelling. And so that, those are the priorities of Tories. Whigs had a different set of priorities. For them, they were less, focused, less worried about the possibility of colonial rebellion. They either thought it wasn't very likely or they thought that it was going to happen so far down the line that it wasn't really worth worrying about at this stage. 
what Wiggs focused on was making colonies as prosperous as possible. Their theory of the economy really focused on colonists as as consumers of British goods, and therefore it became very important to make colonists as wealthy as possible. And from that point of view, English law seemed to make a lot of sense. They wanted to encourage investment and immigration in these colonies. They wanted places like Quebec uh, to be prosperous, wealthy settler colonies, just like New York, you know, a little bit to the south. And so Whigs really focused on introducing English law uh, wherever they could. So when we talk about legal pluralism, there is uh, a narrative of empires tolerating local laws. What are the particular negatives of this narrative of toleration? Well, so I think there there is certainly a lot of truth to that. So when people talk about uh, you know the sins of empires, you know one sort of mitigating factor that scholars will often talk about is the ways in which empires uh, tolerated. Uh, non-Christian religions in which they they tolerated local customs. And this is seen as, as sometimes mitigating the evils of empire, and sometimes it's actually actively offered as a model for how multicultural societies should deal with, with various cultural and religious minorities today. And there's there's some truth to this. I, I think I think it is certainly true uh, that it would have aggravated the evils of imperial rule if Britain had just come in and outlawed Catholicism in Quebec. Britain was a a Protestant country with with many anti-Catholic laws at the time, or if they'd come in and really tried to to outlaw uh, non-Christian religions in India. So that part is true. What the article pushes back a little bit against is assuming that legal pluralism is necessarily part of this program of toleration. It's certainly true that in the 18th century, British officials often defended legal pluralism using a rhetoric of either humanitarianism or of, of religious toleration. Uh, legal pluralism at the time was a controversial policy for the reasons that I've laid out, be- precisely because people thought that it had very strong economic consequences, because people assumed that withholding English law would lead to a greater degree of economic extraction and political subordination. Uh, this was actually was a fairly controversial policy, and Whigs in particular really resisted this in Bengal and Quebec. So Tories responded by saying, no, it would be incredibly intolerant to impose English law on non-English peoples. This is an argument that actually, and some Tories, I think, sincerely believe this. I think uh, Lord Mansfield, for example, who is uh, Lord Chief Justice of England at the time, I think sincerely believed uh, that there were issues of humanitarianism and tolerance at stake uh, in forcing English law on populations that might not want it. Um, but there are other officials who seem to adopt this sort of after the fact. So Warren Hastings, for example, who's, who's governor of Bengal and one of the great architects of legal pluralism in that colony, um, adopts a policy initially and only a couple of years later begins making arguments that this is really in the service of toleration. When he first adopts this, it really seems to be about um, control and economic development. And so my concern is that uh, is that scholars today might take uncritically these 18th century arguments for humanitarianism that were really developed, um, you know, a little bit disingenuously. Uh, again, it's, I, I, I want to avoid the genetic fallacy. I, and I want to emphasize that, that there is a lot of truth to the idea that an unmitigated imposition of English law would have been a hardship on these colonies. But it's also true that Britain's policy of legal pluralism probably went farther than a lot of the colonists themselves actually wanted. Uh, and we have especially good evidence from this from Quebec, although there's also some evidence, good evidence for this from Bengal. 
So in Quebec, it is true that French Canadians uh, petitioned not to have English law imposed on them. But they only really focused on, on particular kinds of English law. They really wanted to keep French law with respect to family law, inheritance, and real property. But when it came to things like contract, tort, and civil procedure, um, French Canadians were either seemed more or less indifferent, or in some cases actually actively petitioned in favor of getting English law imposed. And the reason for this was, well, there were, there were several reasons, one of which was a sense uh, on the part of colonial subjects of what the stakes were. They understood that Britain wasn't just withholding English law because it was tolerant. They understood there was there were there would be economic and political consequences to this. And so especially among sort of what we would call today the middle classes, uh, people like French merchants, uh, they actually pushed very hard for jury trials. They wanted to sit on juries. They wanted to have that degree of political participation. They wanted to have the same court system that merchants in New York and London had so that they could trade with those populations more freely. Uh, and there's some evidence from Bengal this is true as well. Uh, so before uh, the East India Company really set up a system of, of administering Hindu and, and Muslim law, uh, there's some good evidence that, that Indian merchants would resort to English law courts and would in some cases see them as more favorable uh, than other alternative tribunals. Um, so, and actually, there are there are some people uh, in the Whig Party who actually who actually noted this pattern and proposed a compromise, in which the British Empire would have imposed English civil procedure, English contract, English tort law, uh, but would have kept those areas of law that were seen as as maybe more culturally sensitive and more properly local laws, touching more directly on on religion, on family life, on inheritance, on local property. Uh, I should say these are all. I'm using modern terms. These people wouldn't necessarily have talked about laws in these terms, they might have focused more on on the relevant writs that were used at the time, and they might have used different labels, but they, they're they basically talking about these modern legal categories. Can you talk a little bit on the rhetoric used by Whigs and Tories versus policies on the ground and the interests of the uh, colonized themselves? Sure. So, so as I said, you know, Tories' defense of legal pluralism in many cases, went went beyond what local subjects would have wanted. Um, it's also true that although Tories uh, ended up developing a, a pretty sophisticated and powerful theory of, of the need to tolerate local customs, that theory was applied very selectively. And so if, if one looks, for example, at the fate of colonies that were former, formerly owned by France, if one compares, uh, say, former French Quebec to former French Grenada, uh, in the West Indies, Britain actually introduced English law pretty fully, uh, and they went out of their way to bring former French subjects into the English legal and political system. That's very different from what they did in Quebec. And so if, you know, again, it, it seems clear that some Tory policymakers were, were sincere and were really worried about the interests and the desires of local populations, but it's also true that they were perfectly willing to ignore those interests uh, where they thought that it was in the British Empire's best interest. And this is true on, on, on both sides of the debate. Um, you know, One of the people who opposes legal pluralism in Quebec most strongly was Edmund Burke. He's often thought of today as one of the great defenders of pluralism and local toleration and accommodating local customs. Uh, and that's, you know, to some extent true. But for him, what really mattered was the utility and the welfare of conquered peoples. And so in Quebec, he thought, well, maybe it, maybe it's true that Canadians don't really want English law. He thought he was skeptical of that argument. Uh, but he said until he, until he had really good evidence of that, he was going to look mostly on what legal system was in their best interest. And he thought that was going to be English law 
uh, for the reasons I've, I've outlined earlier, because it would encourage assimilation, because it would break down barriers between Quebec and the rest of the British Empire. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that Whigs thought it was in the interest to impose English law was because they thought it would encourage assimilation. They thought that uh, things like jury trials would help educate people in, in what it meant to be a British subject and make it more make them more uh, attuned to what their rights were, make them more confident in asserting their rights, and make them you know more willing and more eager participants in the British imperial economy. So, can you discuss the? Uh historical and modern impacts of the perceptions of uh, legal policy and the rule of law on uh, development and development policy? Sure. So there's been a lot of really interesting work done on the role of institutions in economic development. You know, I think most people today would say that institutions play an important role in determining which countries are rich or poor. Uh, some scholars would say they play the most important role. Uh, and so then it becomes very important to identify which institutions are good ones. Um, and one way to try to study that is by looking at colonial history, looking at what institutions, you know, because so many countries in the world are former colonies, uh, scholars have tried to look at, at sort of the track record of, of European colonies and, and post-colonial countries and to see, you know, what makes some do better than others and can we tie that to particular institutional configurations. So one pattern has been that has emerged has been using uh, colonial legal transplants as a kind of natural experiment. So I said at the beginning there was an assumption that European empires introduced their own laws wherever they settled in large numbers, and where they didn't settle in large numbers, they kept local systems in place. Uh, so in other words, legal pluralism was was basically inevitable uh, in places where there wasn't a majority uh, settler population, and. So that's actually, that's led to a, you know a bunch of different very interesting analyses. My article pushes back against that by saying, well, actually, you need to think about what the intentions were of the colonizer. They weren't imposing these institutions blindly. They weren't automatically withholding or introducing English law. They were actually had a, a theory of law and economic development of their own, and that theory needs to be accounted for in a couple of ways. Uh, first, it's possible that English law was something of a you know had a communicative effect. So in other words, when the British Empire withheld English law from a certain colony, everybody knew what that meant. Right? Merchants knew that was because the British Empire was picking that particular colony to be underdeveloped or to develop in a certain way. And merchants might choose not to trade with that colony because they understood that, or they might choose not to move there because they knew that it was picked to be a loser in a certain sense. Uh, and similarly, Transplanting English law was a, was a signal that the British Empire is really backing a certain kind of economic growth, that it wanted to encourage immigration, and immigrants knew that that might mean that the British Empire would be more likely to introduce certain kinds of other policies there that would make it more desirable to settle in. Second, it's possible that English law uh, was a self-fulfilling prophecy for that reason, that even if English law you know, didn't necessarily have any intrinsic benefits, it's possible uh, that because everybody knew what kind of signal that it was sending, that merely designating a colony as an English law colony would encourage the kind of immigration and investment that would be needed to make it successful. Um, the paper doesn't actually try to prove this. It doesn't look at the subsequent economic history of these colonies, uh, in part because it's tough to do so because the American Revolution happens sort of immediately after these decisions were made for or against legal pluralism. And so, you know, 
A, I'm not an economist, and B, that's a pretty significant uh, disruption that would complicate analysis. Um, but I do suggest that, that if economists or other scholars want to look at the role of colonial institutions in shaping modern economic outcomes, they should you know, account for the intentionality behind colonial legal transplants. So let's step back. Why does this all matter? Why does the issue of uh, why the colonial regime of England may have pursued transplantation versus legal pluralism matter? Right. So it, so it's, it matters for a few reasons. So one, again, is is it helps us figure out what kinds of law actually promote economic growth. So you know, for example, one of the you know big theories that was prominent in the early part of the 21st century was known as the legal origins theory, and then it was the idea that legal systems with a, with roots in English common law tended to produce better legal rules and better economic outcomes than the alternatives. And this was a theory that was influential not only in academia but at the World Bank, you know, which urged developing countries to conform their legal systems to Anglo-American lines. Um, the theory went in for a lot of criticism, but you know. One of it, you know, this paper shows that one of its major defects was a failure to account for the role of legal pluralism, both in terms of accounting for the intentions of, of empires and also for the reality that different colonies had different kind, different amounts of English law. Um, so these are these are questions that actually matter a lot, not only in the academy but also for you know aid efforts and development efforts uh, at the international level. So that's that's one reason why it matters. Uh, another, again, is to think about the history of humanitarianism um, and to think about you know, how should multicultural societies think about the need for uniform laws. Uh, so one example of this uh, comes up even today in, in the United States after the Spanish-American War. Uh, the U.S. You know, acquired a bunch of overseas territories. And a, const- a constant question was, does the Constitution follow the flag? Uh, that's where my title comes from. Uh, and there's been a tendency, you know, initially, there was a tendency initially to see the failure to introduce the full range of U.S. constitutional rights to places like Puerto Rico, to see that as a failure, to see that as a betrayal of the sort of early American promise of uniform statehood for every American. More recently, there's been a little bit of ambivalence about that, saying maybe it was actually a wise move of, of multicultural toleration to not to fully... You know, Americanize Puerto Rico's legal system. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert on on, on Puerto Rican law, and I, I don't know enough about that to, to comment directly. But I would point to my paper as a cautionary note against going too quickly down that path, against seeing you know colonial legal differences as necessarily tolerant or wise or multicultural, um, and looking at it in the broader context of imperial law uh, to see what else might be going on there. So as a final question, what should scholars and historians think about legal policy when they think about it as a tool of empire broadly? And more generally, what should they take away from your paper? Uh, Two things. So first is, is I think it's important to actually look at legal policy as a policy. So for many decades, I think historians and legal historians in particular have shied away from from looking at what metropolitan policymakers were doing. Uh, part of that was because of trends within British history. There is uh, a famous historian named Lewis Namier 
who analogized uh, the roles of 18th century English politicians to a child's quest for cake. In other words, they wanted political power because it was sort of fun and enjoyable and they wanted the, the wealth and prestige, but they weren't really looking to make the world a better place. And if that's one's assumption going in, then it doesn't really, you know, it's not really interesting to look at what policymakers are doing in London. That redirects attention towards conditions on the ground, towards the laws lived. And that's been where the you know, a lot of the most interesting work has been for the last few decades. I think one thing that, that historians and, and legal scholars could do going forward is to redirect attention back to what's going on in London, to, to see legal policies as deliberate. Of course, because London wants to do something doesn't mean that's how it's going to work on the ground. But to, to remember that there actually is an intention uh, you know, and a set of, of deliberate political choices that are being made in London that do actually matter on the periphery. The second thing is, is I think it's important to, to again, differentiate among different kinds of law. Uh, to note, for example, that legal pluralism and contract law might be really different from legal pluralism and family law, both in terms of its consequences, in terms of how easy it is to transplant different kinds of law. Um, there's been some good work on this already, but I think it's important when we talk about legal pluralism to really look at the different roles that different kinds of law are playing, both locally and in empires as a whole. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast to talk about your very interesting paper, Professor Brissett. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Uh-huh.